Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Christina K.O. is the co-founder of Lumini Macaron, an indie beauty brand focusing on making gel manicures easy and fun to DIY at home. With such a fast-growing brand, I cannot wait to dive in and learn all about Christina's journey so far. Hi everyone and welcome to Founded Beauty, a podcast dedicated to beauty entrepreneurs who built some of the biggest brands today and where we learn exactly how they did it. We'll cover some of the most intimate stories, their path to success and how they overcame the obstacles along the way. I'm Akash Mehta, CEO and co-founder of Fable & Maine a modern hair wellness brand inspired by ancient Indian beauty secrets. Building Fable in Maine has been an incredible journey so far, and I decided to launch this podcast as a founder keen to learn and connect with fellow beauty brand founders around the world. I believe in collaboration over competition, and so I'm using this platform as a way to help and hopefully inspire each other in what can be quite a tough and lonely journey. So if you are an entrepreneur or simply just curious how to build a brand, this podcast is perfect for you. So without further ado, it's a delight to introduce you our guest for today, Christina Keo. Christina Keo used to go to the salon every two weeks to get her gel manicure done. But after growing tired of the time and cost it took, Christina set out to find an easy, quick and affordable way to recreate a salon-worthy manicure from home. Le Mini Macaron is a portable DIY kit with a gel polish and a macaron LED lamp. How cool is that? And it's designed for everyone to use. The brand has launched in over 30 markets following its successful Kickstarter campaign in 2015, and now with over 100 shades in the range, a new range of nail care and spa pedi sets, Le Mini Macaron is showing no signs of slowing down. One thing I especially love about what Christina has achieved so far is the fact that her team is almost entirely comprised of women. Spreading this idea of mentorship and raising the next generation of strong female leaders is so inspiring and something I hope we continue to see amongst beauty founders around the world. So Christina, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story. Thank you so much, Akash, for having me. I'm so delighted to be here and I'm a big fan of your podcast. Oh, well, I'm a big fan of you and everything you've done. So, you know, we're just going to get straight into it. I think you know that you know the question that's coming up, which is who in a nutshell is Christina? I love this question. And I was thinking about this because I've definitely heard this question on your other interviews. Um, so I'm the co-founder of Le Mini Macaron. We are a French-American nail brand. And I was born in Alabama, actually, to Taiwanese immigrant parents. So I'm Taiwanese-American. I grew up in the Deep South from Birmingham, Alabama. And then I moved to New York when I was 18. And I went to NYU. So I spent about 10 years living in 
the Big Apple, um, which was a very diverse environment. And after that, I moved to Shanghai. So I lived in China for almost 10 years. And um, it was an incredible experience. Um, and I've actually more recently moved to Barcelona. So I've been in Barcelona for several years now. And I guess, you know, just with that background, probably you can tell that I am a big fan of different cultures. Um, I love people and knowing about different people's backgrounds and new ideas. So um, that's a bit about me. I, I'm really curious and I really enjoy hearing about um, other people, other ideas and um, just learning, really learning and, and always growing. I would say that's, that's who I am. I mean, A, that's incredible. I know you were speaking earlier prior to the podcast and you were saying how um, the experience you've had and the, the countries you've lived in, you know, you speak English, Spanish, French, um, Mandarin. It's, it's incredible. And I would love to know kind of from Alabama to New York, what was that kind of shift like? And then from that also New York to Shanghai and also Shanghai to Barcelona. Like, did you find... Um, a huge, you had to change a lot as a person to adapt or did you feel like you were always very globally minded from kind of day one? I, I think that's a really interesting question and really topical these days, actually. Um, and, you know, I had my view on being Asian American growing up in the U.S. and then moving to China. And I had my personal experience. But more recently, you know, with AAPI and everything that's been going on the past few years, I've actually thought much deeper about my personal experience. And um, yeah, it's something that I've been talking about more. So growing up in the Deep South in a community that was very homogenous, um, I was living in a suburb of Birmingham, Alabama, which was mostly white American. Um, we were one of maybe four families in the area that were Asian. And um, so when I was growing up, I always wanted to assimilate. Um, I don't know if this is a similar experience for you from, you know, where you grew up in London, I think. But, um, you know, in Alabama, when you're young and you're growing up in this type of suburban community and there weren't other Asian Americans around, there weren't other families or cousins, I actually just really wanted to assimilate. Um, and I wanted to push down a bit my identity and my family's heritage and identity. I didn't want to talk about it. And when people asked me, say something in Chinese. I felt really embarrassed. And it was not something that I wanted to highlight. And then when I moved to New York, um, it was a complete shift because then I was at NYU. I went to the Stern, the undergrad business school, which there's a lot of Asian people that go to Stern, um, either Asian American or overseas people who come over. And the school was just so diverse. I'd never been around so much multicultural um, groups of people that I felt very comfortable and um, I really enjoyed it. Um, some of my closest friends from college are, are Asian Americans. Um, and, you know, I had, but, you know, New York is very diverse and it's a very, you know, I worked in like the creative ad agency world. So incredibly diverse across, across all categories, I would say. Um, and so I sort of jumped into it. I embraced it. But when I moved to China, um, that was a really different experience because I went from being a minority in the U.S. to suddenly being part of a majority. And that was a really interesting shift because in China, Chinese people would see me as I came home. They would always say to me when they were speaking to me in Chinese, oh, you've come home. So even though I said I was born in the U.S., I'm American, they considered as I've, I've come back um, where I belong 
And, um, but because I spoke English fluently and I lived in the U.S., they almost saw it as very admirable and almost aspirational. And maybe you have a similar experience with your, you know, family heritage in India. Um, people would look to me, like Chinese people would see, this was back in, I would say, 07, 08, yeah. as it was very aspirational. Like they identified with me, it was familiar, but they were impressed that I spoke English and had lived in the U.S. and had worked in the U.S., and living in a majority culture that was, it was very homogenous, but I lived in a bit of an expat bubble as well when I was in Shanghai. Um, it was, it was a nice experience. I got to know my heritage. I understood more about my family. You know, I was more curious about their background, you know, the family that had been in China that then moved to Taiwan that immigrated to the U S I had more curiosity. I didn't want to tamp down these stories. I wanted to know more. And then, um, so this kind of got a bit opened up inside me, um, and it was very interesting. I think from a personal perspective and also just, you know, my personal journey and, and interest, it opened up something that um, I embraced my heritage for, for probably the first time. I was truly interested. I was truly proud. And then as I, when I left China and I've, you know, I go back to the U.S. a lot. I, you know, I'm in Europe, um, in Barcelona. When I meet other people, especially people who are from, you know, different countries in Asia um, who live either in Europe or in the U.S., I have a, a much deeper curiosity about their background and their journey than I ever did when I was in the U.S. So I think it just it was like a full circle thing, you know, to, to kind of learn more. And then moving to Spain, to be honest, I was a bit... Um, I was a bit wondering if I would face any racism, yeah. you know, growing up in the U.S. I didn't really face that much racism. I was pretty lucky, even though I was part of these like homogenous cultures in the South. I didn't really face that. But um, coming to Spain, I was wondering, you know, it's going to be Southern Europe. Um, how do they see Asian people? A lot of Asian people in Southern Europe tend to be immigrants from China. Um, what would that experience be like? I've been very fortunate. I think um, Barcelona specifically is a very open culture with um, you just, there's a lot of tourism. There's a lot of international expats who live here. So overall, it has been um, really welcoming, actually. I think people are here. They're very curious. But yeah, it's come kind of full circle. And I fully kind of connect with you when you say about, you know, kind of reconnecting with your heritage and sort of realizing that the impact, you know, us as sort of, people of, let's say, you know, Asian or like a descent, it's really interesting going back to our countries to see how inspiring it is for those who mm -hmm. A, wish to, to also maybe make a, a mark abroad or overseas. Um, and just to see someone of, you know, their culture, their heritage to do that really does inspire many. And I especially see this on social media because that's one of the often the easiest ways to to connect with people from India or you know, from China. And I feel like this has been one of the main reasons why, as much as I don't really enjoy using social media, I often find myself posting updates. And, you know, it's because mm -hmm. I see those messages of most of my following is from India. And I see those messages mm -hmm. of those young kids and young students dreaming about going to Dior, for example, and being like, oh, my God, right. you're the first ever like Indian that I've seen like make right. it in the, in the industry. And it's like, well, anyone can do it. Um, definitely there are things like, you know, also, they need to learn, like, for example, I didn't even realize, but you need to speak French to work in the head office, like all these little things right. um, kind of helps them, like, what do they need to do to get there. And we've obviously had a bit of a leg up, you know, being brought, raised in, in, a, in America and in London. It's just helped us kind of, I guess, 
yeah, fit in with um, with mm-hmm. some of these opportunities. But I, I do kind of feel going to France. I did experience a lot of. I was very fortunate. I didn't have like I guess you could say like I would say very transparent racism, but I did have mm-hmm. very light or I would say mm-hmm. what's the best way to say it? like casual like mm-hmm. uh, racism that. When you take a step back, I was like, "Wait, that's right. pretty. Um, that's pretty racist." Yeah. And they, they say yeah. it in jest, or little side yeah. comments like, "Oh, but for an Indian, you know, you're this," or it's, it's shocking yeah. that. Or where are you from? Like, where are you? Where are you really from? And I'm yep. like, "Okay." So, did you did yep. you feel like in Europe you did have some of this, or even in America? Yeah, I think, um, and that's really interesting because I, I know a lot about the French culture because my co-founder, who's my ex-boyfriend, is French, and yep. I spent a lot of time there, and I think. France has a very unique um, history and culture and, you know, the how the political climate there, it's very unique, um, very different from the UK or the US. It sounds like it's stemming a bit from ignorance, you know, I mean, which yes. probably a lot I of racism see. does stem from that. It, it's not maybe overt or aggressive, but like you said, if it's in jest, it's probably coming from not a mean place, but maybe more of an ignorant place. Yeah. Um, I've certainly faced that a lot. I would say growing up in the US, if people ask me, oh, where are you really from? Prior to leaving, so I left um, when I was about 28. Prior to leaving, I think I would it would bother me. Like I would take mm. it um, a bit personally. And, you know, because I wanted to assimilate. Like I was American. I didn't want to talk about why I was different. Like I want to talk about why I belonged. Um yeah. But after living in, in China and also just meeting people from all different backgrounds and, and seeing journeys of people, um, actually today, if people ask me that, like I ask people that actually when I meet people, yeah. like I really want to know people's journeys and it's not to make someone feel different. But for me, with the places I've lived and, and the things I've seen, I'm genuinely curious um, yeah. where people are from. So today, if I'm asked that question, I, I, I absolutely don't take offense at it. Um, I kind of also know, you know, my audience and like where they're, where they're coming from. So exactly. if it's someone who, you know, I grew up in the South in the U S so, you know, I also, when I go back and I see my friends and I meet sometimes their friends, I know the backgrounds of these people, maybe they haven't been as exposed to international people or different cultures. So they might just be asking out of curiosity, um, with not any bad intent. Um, yes. and it's the same in, in France and Spain, like when people really want to know, I'm pretty open to yep. to telling people, but I totally know what you mean. No, it's a, it's a really good mindset to have. And I think I had to like, definitely when I was in France, all the little comments I received or about skin color and this and that, it was always yeah. like, um, I had to just accept and say, you know what, it comes from not a bad place. And I can't really blame them sometimes because a lot of these people, every summer they stayed in the country, they didn't travel around. I was fortunate to live and travel all around the world likewise for you so I think it's definitely um how you take in the information and also educate in a way of like oh by the way like absolutely no problem but just the way you say it maybe phrase it like this because some other people could Mm -hmm. take offense you know just a little bit of education um that's the best way but you you mentioned um about you know your your ex-boyfriend your business partner would love to know how um is it Francois Xavier I believe Francois Um, yeah Francois Francois Xavier but we just Francois Francois um how did you meet him and how did um the journey of Le Mini Macron came to be so um, I was in China for a few years and I was working. So I'd always worked at agencies, like ad agencies, event agencies, and I had that life and I continued that when I moved to Shanghai. And then um, I met Francois in 2012. 
Um, we actually met at a club, you know, okay. like many couples back in the day. Um, yes. And, you know, we just met each other. And um, after six months of dating, we decided to very naively start a business together. Um, well, I would say we didn't set out to start a business together. Um, we set out to do a project. I would say. Um, so I had been coming from more of a marketing, you know, creative agency, working with designers type of background. He um, had been working for a beauty company that was doing wholesale beauty um, out of France. And then he'd been in Asia for, you know, many years um, working on um, product development, production, logistics, so all the supply chain side. So he knew all the back end of the business. I was more the front end. I'd worked with clients, client management, account management. So we were combining sort of the marketing and sales with the his supply chain knowledge. Um, so we started six months in. The way we started, actually, we were um, we were on vacation on on holiday in the Philippines, and this was in 2013. And I was reading probably like a I was reading like Elle magazine, one of those magazines, and. In 2013, nail art was like the hottest thing. It was kind of having this surge and there were all these um, nail art designs out there. And I sort of mentioned it to him offhand and I was like, yeah, this is like a thing. He's like, we should make nail art kits. I mean, you don't imagine your boyfriend saying that to you, you know, yeah. but yeah. he's like, we should make nail art kits. You're like, I was like, come again. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. like, sure. Okay. I actually had, um, I was sort of, um, wanting to leave the corporate job I was at and, um, wanting to do something else, not knowing what to do. So it was good timing. And we decided to start a project together and, you know, as you know, it's very hard to start a brand or a company. And I think most people maybe don't set out with that intention in the beginning. Like sometimes you have to be a bit naive about it. And then one thing leads to another. And that's what happened with us. You've got to explore concept. Like, like that proof of concept is often the first step, not the business plan, you know, just to see, could it have legs? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Put the feelers out. Would people yeah. buy this? Is there a market yeah. for it? Um, so yeah, so we started kind of with projects and we, we had two, um, I would call them brands if you want, that we had tried and, and failed prior to doing Le Mini Macaron. And, you know, at that time, even though we had experience, you know, me with marketing, him with um, supply chain, there's a whole ecosystem of business that includes, you know, I would say pricing strategy. We really got pricing strategy wrong in those first early years. We got um, like distribution and sales strategy, like, cause we weren't coming from retail or D2C, like offline, online retail, we weren't coming from this. So no idea, you know, and back then like e-commerce and social media were, it was early days. It's so not, you know, back in 2013, it's so not what it is today. So lots of stuff to learn. And we were really naive. Like we started this because we thought, Hey, let's travel the world together and we'll go to exhibitions and meet clients and, you know, fly all over and then learn the hard way. There's all these other aspects of business that we need to, we need to learn. So, um, we we started to do it. We had these projects. And then in 2015, we landed on Le Mini Macaron, which took all the learnings of the two failed brands um, and, and put it into this new brand. We launched it on Kickstarter. Um, and from there, because we were living in Shanghai, decided to, we were sort of all over the place. We're like, let's, you know, um, distribute in France. So we have a sister company 
that he set up in France with his partner there to distribute to Sephora. So we were very lucky because actually within the first year, we had just Sephora distribution secured for all doors in France. So that really gave us a leg up. Um, but then because we were in China, we were also focused on, um, we work with Sephora in China, which was crazy because, you know, we weren't, we didn't know how to do marketing in China. You can't just launch 200 doors yeah. and not activate the market as I'm sure you know, but that's what we did, which was very scary. Um, a lot of mistakes there. Uh, we also were doing stuff in Taiwan. So we were very spread. We also work with Lane Crawford. I'm sure you know Lane Crawford yeah, because huge. of your background. Yeah. yeah. So we did a little collab with them when we first launched. So just, you know, we were in the East and in the West and, um, and kind of hustling, just trying this, trying that with our resources and sort of what we knew. We also worked with distributors who took on some markets for us. So we have distributors in like Northern Europe, um, certain your other like like Eastern European countries, certain Asian markets, and um, that also helped us a lot in the beginning. Um, our, our distributors who took on their own territories, and um, it just came about like that, you know. And then um, little by little, you know, I think one of the things was we did try to do a lot of markets, which was um, we were spread really thin, um, but you know, we learned from that. And then, um, from there, you know, now I would say when we moved to Barcelona about four years ago, we stabilized a bit and we really focused. And so now we're, we have our key markets that our team focuses on and really tries to activate. But yeah, that's how we kind of started. So, I mean, you're also in, in the U S right? Like in target and yeah. So we just launched in target. Um, we did, we started in Q4, like yeah. October, we, we did like the end cap in Q4, but then we had the full rollout in, in February for yeah. 2022. Um, so targets a beast, you know, yeah. it's like amazing to work with them, but a lot of challenges, um, yeah. a lot of learnings, you know, with this type of retailer, we're very lucky to have a great team that supports supports this. Um, but yeah, we, so when we lived in China, we were mostly focused on like, we were the brand and we were making products and we were making marketing materials, but then we had distributors in different countries who would then buy the product, go activate those markets. They were responsible for their own inventory. They would, mm -hmm. you know, get retailers, they would do e-com, they would, um, do activation, social media, all that. And then we were sort of focused in China with like a little bit happening in the U S so from 2015 to, I would say, maybe 2017, 2018, U.S. was a bit like here and there. We would do some stuff, then we'd scale back, then we'd go back in. We weren't really consistent about it. But in 2017, we, um, when we moved to Barcelona, we decided also, let's like really push. We're going to really push Europe, and we're going to really push U.S. Um, so we have our own um, companies in these places, which are our own distribution and marketing companies that activate these markets. So today we're focused on, I would say my team directly is focused on, um, full like U S like U S Spain and Italy. We used to do UK, but with Brexit, we're like it was, it was too crazy to manage with Brexit. So UK is there. We do some stuff. Like we work with ASOS. We have some good retailers there, like online retailers. But we took our foot off the pedal of UK. Yep. We're really focused on these three markets, which is already a lot. I think, um, I mean, you're working across yeah. multiple regions. So I'm sure you know how, how, how exhausting that can be and, yeah. and the resources you need. Yeah. But um, yeah, we do focus on these three markets. And this past, I would say the past year, US has really been taking a front seat. And, and really trying to accelerate us. So we've got target, um, 500 stores, which is the most we've ever had. I would say that my team and me directly, um, 
supervising and stressing about sell through and, and so many stores um, that we've launched. And then um, we also work with like Nordstrom. Um, we worked with Madewell. We've done stuff with QVC before. So we have um, some nice retailers like Urban Outfitters. There's different retailers in the US that um, like Ulta, we're with Ulta.com. Um, that have been really great for our, for our brand awareness. That's, I, have, I have a list of like, well, after you just said that, I have a list of questions, A, as a founder, because I'm literally going through a lot of things. I think you can advise, a lot, uh, advise me on a lot of these, but also um, like, yeah, I'm sure you have so many great learnings. So I kind of will go through a few of my questions because I rarely, when I speak to founders, I'm often like, what can I talk about with you? I feel like there's, I, I don't know how I'm going to fit this in a podcast. It can go so. in many directions. <laughs> we can also so my, have like separate coffee Zoom calls. To, I think I think that's no, like, that's uncover. going to happen. Any way we can like just help each other collaborate. Like I just that's why I love, I love this it. podcast. I, I always say this first podcast right. is like a Zoom founder to founder that I just record for the world to listen, and then the second yeah. and third is just like there's so many more stuff we can get into. Um, no I'm hundred percent sure I'm also going to do like um, kind of. Uh, podcast like uh revisits like a year later with okay, the founders yeah. to see how how they've right. gone and how they've grown because i think there's so much we can do in a year um but uh so my first question which i have on on what you said is sort of um because i'm dealing with the same thing right now i within less than two years we've really expanded quite quickly and i come from my father's in in you know international business of perfume and i come from a very like global mindset um so often many founders and many brands stick to one market and it's really that kind of opportunity cost of like penetration of expansion um especially when team size is limited or expertise as well um and you said, you know, you've, and not you've just said, but you've also demonstrated you're in a lot of different retailers, a lot of learnings. How did you deal with those moments when uh, you felt a little bit like, oh, uh, in over, you know, it was in the deep end and everything kind of bubbles up at one point? Because when you make these discussions, right, you might pursue a retailer in a region, but then it's only a couple of months later when it actually all comes to life because it takes a lot of negotiation and time. But there might be, were there moments where you're like, oh my God, we have like three retailers or th- five regions launching at the same time. What are we doing? Yeah, we definitely did that in the early days. I would say from 20, so 2015 was the first year of the brand, but then 2016, 2017, we were all over the world. It was insane. Like we were yeah. activating stores in Taiwan. Like we set up a company in Taiwan to do activation. I would never do that today. <laughs> We like decided to launch in Sephora Middle East. Like we were in two stores and then we were there talking to the people trying to do events. And then we were in like Sephora Spain and we had France that was going. So um, definitely spread really thin in the beginning. Um, One of the things I I always joke about with Francois and I always say to him, I'm like, we're too global for our own good. Because we have been living in, you know, in China and then here and we speak different languages. I mean, he speaks Chinese, like he's like doing negotiations with factories in Chinese. We have this mindset that we could do everything. And I think, you know, a lot of, um, I would say my peers, our peers are kind of like this. Like we have access to a lot of things today um, through our networks, through just technology and digital, you know, we have more access than we did 15 years ago. So it gives us a sense that we can do business everywhere. And, you know, me being American, it allows him as a European person to have access to really doing business in the U S and then him being French, I have access to Europe. We had access to Asia. So with that, you know, you're, eyes are like so big, like you want to do everything. But, and and we did that. We were here and there and it was very random. I would say those early years, like there was a lot of 
very specific retail activations we were doing, and we were doing like social media marketing in very specific mm-hmm. countries that ultimately we couldn't support because we we were the global brand, you know, and I mean, we're an independent brand. So it was a small team. We were the global brand, but then we were trying to support our distributors who had their markets and they needed stuff from us. But then we were directly activating our own markets where we had our e-commerce. So we have two websites, .com and .eu that we have to support the social for these different countries that, you know, um, you have to support and, and, you know, be able to speak to people on the ground and then the retail online, offline retail. Um, I would say we did spend probably two to three years really spread thin. Um, one of, you know, an example of one of the mistakes and, and the things that we've changed is when we first came to Europe, we set up, um, we had our main social account on Instagram, Lemony Macron, but then we set up a Spanish one and an Italian one. Yeah. Um, our distributors have separate ones. So there's a French one, there's a Danish one, there's a Slovakian, there's all these other ones. Um, and we were having interns, like like the main team was managing the English one, but then we had a Spanish intern for the Spanish one, an Italian intern for that. And what I was seeing is that the easiest way for us to manage it was to copy and paste the content into these other accounts. The interns were rotating every six months. So then you're having to retrain people. Um, We weren't giving those local accounts enough love. So, you know, the interns would be like, hey, it's this like special Spanish holiday. Let's shoot photo content for this specific thing. And then they go talk to our designers and then the designers are making photo shoots just for Spain or just for Italy. And I was like, this can't be used for global. Were spread really thin. The social accounts, because they weren't getting love, weren't getting good engagement. Followers but engagement. they yeah. were open channels for customer service problems. So all the yeah. DMs were coming in, you know. Oh, no. And I was like, "Wow, this is hard to manage." And then they were, you know, it was a rotation of interns, and so um, we didn't have the resources or the budget at that time to really staff up with, I would say, a proper marketing manager for each market who would really do a 360 plan and everything would be supporting everything. So after like, I would say 18 months, I decided to, I just made the decision to roll everything up. I was like, let's stop the Spanish and Italian Instagram accounts. It's going to be the main LMM account. We do have multiple team members who go in and will answer people in the local language. It's a lot to manage because there's a lot of people having to check that inbox and all the comments and everything. But that was, for me, that was a good decision until now because we couldn't handle it being really split. Yeah. We needed to give that main account love and grow grow the base, but also make sure that we maintain engagement. And it, it was the decision. Not everyone on the team agreed with me. Um, they yeah. really wanted to ha- do it locally. And I, I'm sure like people who you know were Italian that were working with me, they were like, come on, we've got to do you know, it on a local level. And I'm like, but we can't handle it. Like we just have to prioritize. So, um, that was a decision we made. Um, I'm happy with it until now it is coming to a point where we may need to split off again because we do run everything from one office. Like it's one team running everything. There are certain people who do local activation, but this year I'm really thinking, I'm like, how do we split Europe and us? Maybe this Mm. needs to be somehow, not like two teams, but they need to be a bit more specialized so that they can really, they're, they're so nuanced, you know, I mean, the U S is a beast. Europe has so many countries and languages and, you know, mixed together. So this year I am thinking, I don't know if it's going to happen this year, maybe next year, but as the business has, um, developed a bit more, we're a bit older now. Um, 
you know, what's that next step for us? But there were things that were happening at that time that we were too global for our own good. Um, we had to kind of bring it in again. Um, and then now what we're doing is with the, with Target, um, what's been very interesting for me personally is that we have a massive retailer that we can land everything on. And it gives us, it gives us great. I mean, you guys are in Sephora in the U.S. Um, how many doors are you in, by the way? We're going to be in like nearly 430 by the end of by next month, this month. Like we're in 150 more doors yeah. this month, but about 300 something right now. Yeah. That's incredible. And that's a, that's a great amount. You're, you're in the next big thing. I've seen you guys yes. there. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. It's like your picture's there. You're in the next big thing section. I would say that's a brilliant way to start with a massive retailer like that because yeah. you're, it's not like you have this. I mean, they, they want to see you prove it it's out first, which point. is good. Exactly. Discovery. Yeah. Um, but it's enough like doors that you'll have that point of sale and that awareness, which is what also we needed. It's like yes. to try to do D to C with zero offline. It is just God. an uphill battle. It's expensive. Put a lot. It's expensive. It's expensive. Yeah. You need to pour a lot into marketing investment. Um, I mean, there are brands, I mean, I, I know other founders who just pour like, like I would say over a million or two million a month mm. into paid social. And yeah. I'm like, just I just to get like a two X or one X, no. but actually it's just not sustainable. No, no. Yeah. And especially with all the changes that have happened in the last year. Yeah. Um, and, and that's just really scary. Like we're not funded. I mean, we're, we're self-funded. Yeah. Um, like we're bootstrapped from day one. Profitability is very important to us, yes. you know, because we want to make sure we can grow in a healthy manner. Um, and, you know, so we have to consider all these things. Like we want to make every dollar we spend or every euro we spend work that much harder for us. Um, and so we have to be really careful and very, very wise. Yep. And, and you know, if you're trying to go fast, it's hard, right? Fast. There's going to be a bit of wastage. 100%. So, but you just, um, you know, I think we're very fortunate because with, the target launch and having um, having like 500 stores, you know, there's a, there's a good revenue that's attached to that um, up front. But then what you have, what you're concerned about is the sell through. Because yeah. I'm like, well, they're gonna they're gonna order that stock. You'll get a shiny initial PO, but you have to make sure it sells. And then you know, there's also this risk of either delisting or you know decreasing your doors if you don't get the sell through and then how do you get the sell through it's local market relevancy of like maybe in-store events or local marketing on the ground and and it's hard when you also have uh x amount of retailers and regions to also manage at the same time so i think you're on the right track of like do you separate certain you know allow certain people to take over certain divisions when the market size has so much potential because us you know just on its own could be 70 80 percent of the business if done right absolutely yeah absolutely i think that was the thing that shifted for us in the last year is that us was the market and we we decided that like us was the market that was gonna really take off we're gonna put the resources there we did get that shiny PO. And, and yeah. with that, I was like, let's deepen our investment into marketing, into people yeah. as well. And like, so we have more, I would say, even though we're a startup, we do have consultants that advise and help us with marketing and retail sales. So we're getting that great experience on the team um, that before we were more startup-y. Um, and then I know that I have that retailer there. So I'm just doing everything I can. And my team is just so on top of things to really make sure we are activating from from launch, like pre-launch to launch, and just making sure we're keeping the pressure on because sell-through, like we have failed in other yeah. countries before. Like I have had 
just dozens of retailers that we've launched in in the past in all sorts of markets where we didn't know that it was up to us to activate the marketing and and get that brand awareness out there for them, drive traffic in the store for them. It's Mm -hmm. not how it was, you know, um, seven, eight years ago where you could launch into a retailer and basically ride their coattails to visibility and success. They really lean on you to bring in that traffic now. And also a lot lot of them, I mean, some of them, a, don't have as much power as we think. We think the name is so strong, but actually it's the brands within it that help the, the name get stronger. And two, some of them actually are now charging, like certain retailers that just have too many or taking on too many brands to get the exposure will be a form of partnership marketing and there'll be a fee involved mm-hmm. that often, you know, you don't want to do straight away because it's more than the PO you'll get and then it's more of a, mm-hmm. you'll make a loss initially. So you want to first test yeah. the waters. But then it's like a catch-22 because if you don't do that, then they're relying on your own marketing. But then if you already right. have other, eight other retailers or you have a D2C presence in that market, it's like, you know, do you spend your investment on that one retailer? Especially when it comes to online, right? Where a lot of it is head of the last three years. Uh, I always had this battle of, okay, I have one influencer I'm paying. Do I send the link to fablemain.com or sephora.com? Totally. Which is the one? Totally. Yeah, that's yeah. hard. Yeah. The, 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 the dilemma <laughs> of a beauty brand. Of many. Um, and I, I think what I've learned recently is, and I've made a conscious decision in the company, is when you also when you're spread quite big and wide, and this is the benefit of going global, is it makes it easier to justify then main, 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 main investment is to the brand. Get the brand equity, mm-hmm. brand awareness out there. And then as long as, you know, I've seen in you guys, yours Instagram, you put very clearly in the bio where it's, which of the retailers. As long as you have, you know, and they will have their own SEO and their own paid socials of retailers. So as long as the brand awareness on the brand is there, people will then decide themselves, oh, it's at Target. Okay, no, that's so much easier for me than just go on the website, I'll buy from there. Mm-hmm. Or I'm a loyalty member of Sephora. Okay, I know I can get my return policy there. Let me go there. But that's what I've decided actively is like, um, and also I've seen how retailers effectiveness can wane really quickly and their support mm-hmm. can go really quickly so it isn't the most sustainable thing to be so retailer dependent i think it's mm-hmm. smart in tactical moments when they have sales when they are new to you when you're having a new launch for sure invest but as long as you're not opportunity costing that to your own brand uh, totally. equity, i think that's so important and i think you guys have done a really fantastic job of that a by also creating the, the local accounts but also by having a good balance between direct to retail, D2C and distributors. And on that point, I wanted to ask sort of like, you know, now we're heading to a world where, uh, in a beauty scape, where direct to retail seems to be a lot of the way forward. Uh, my dad is a, a distributor, like um, mogul. That's what he does, secondary market in a proper way, in a very controlled way. I have built my brand purely D2C, direct to retail and D2C. So obviously I have a lot of conversations with him and I kind of say, um, you know, it's a lot easier for brands now, even small brands, to go direct to retail. It's not as scary anymore. It's not as, do I need to go via someone? Even if I have no local people in the market, there's consultants, there's freelancers. So are you thinking, you know, some of the decisions made in 2015, 2016, 2017 with, with distributors, are you very happy with the distributor model and keeping that? Or are you thinking more only the relationships with the retailers and markets long term? So in the US and in certain European countries where we don't have, when I say distributor, it's um, our distributor partners who own certain territories. So for example, um, Korea is a market that we 
gave to a distributor. They have exclusivity. Um, they buy in the product. They they own the inventory. They handle all the import, export, all that stuff. They yeah. handle exactly, and then they um, do local logistics, and then they actually go find retailers in Korea, like um, what is yeah. it called, Olive and Young, yes. um, and they go active and they they do the marketing and all of that. So. Our distributors, of which we have a number of them because we've been working with them, a lot of them we've worked with since like the early days, um, they have their territories and they have them exclusively. Um, we don't touch them. You know, we allow them to do their thing there. Uh, they find retailers in the market. Um, so most of these distributors are... Um, we're pretty close with them. Like they are, we're not working with distributors that have been around for 30 years and have like really established um, logistics systems and, you know, retail points everywhere. We're actually working with um, most of our distributors. Actually, all of our distributors are entrepreneurs. So they tend to be. It's like their own brand then. Totally. Like, I mean, yeah. they've really um, taken Le Mini Macron as like their baby too. So it's like their baby in their market. And they're so excited about newness. Um, they want to know all the marketing stuff we're doing. They're so keen to follow how we do things. Do they join like education calls and they want to like learn every single thing about each product and launch? So they're really part of the team. Yeah. Well, we don't do education calls. <laughs> <laughs> we should, but yeah. um, but we we do try to like push out the information. But they yeah. they're so passionate about the brand, and um, they do want to learn more. And like they're all kind of talking. Like we talk on um, Instagram, we talk on WeChat. Yeah. Like we're always talking to each other. So um, generally, they are you know they're 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 real partners for us um, in territories because we can't we learn we can't be all over the world. Um, and so they have their territories. Um, you know, it works really well for us. We have, you know, enough on our hands to handle. So we handle these other markets. In these other markets that we're in, we do work direct directly with retailers. So all of the, like, for example, Target, Ulta, all of these relationships, um, it's it's my team and myself who are have the contacts with the buyers. And like, I'm on all the meeting, like the market meetings yeah. and stuff with all these buyers. Um, and then Ecom, it's our team who handles it. So we have the two websites, um, all the social media, all the activation, and then influencer marketing, everything for US, Spain, and Italy. My team is yep. managing. And then the distributors will handle, you know, they'll do influencer marketing in their country, the social media. Yep. Yeah. Which is often better because they have the expertise and the local know how, which we might not have yeah. in a global sense. Yeah. I do think, I mean, your question about retailers and, you know, is it best to kind of own that relationship? I do think in markets that, because we're prioritizing these markets, um, for example, the U.S., hmm. I do like having the direct relationship. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, there are different scenarios you can work with with certain retailers. I mean, you can work through brokers and you can work through third parties or even like regionally in the U.S., you can work through distributors. I do think if it's a premium distributor, I mean, a premium retailer, like a Sephora or an Ulta or Target or Nordstrom, um, it, it is important to to know the buyer. For me, I've always 100%. found that, especially as you're the founder, and have it's loyalty really great. To them. Because I, mm -hmm. when, when they're tier one, I call them like tier one retailers, I would really, you know, A, don't jeopardize um, and don't think, things, I never take things for granted because, you know, it is a sort of like a friend game. Like, you know, these buyers in and out. And when one leaves, which they often like kind of, uh, recycle a lot of these like they go around you have to like rebuild the relationship it's the first call of action because friendship with the buyers are so is so important to the brand success and also just to enjoy the journey but also when you go direct to retail you're learning a lot mm -hmm. you're, it's a form of um 
consulting mm-hmm. they're educating you on what other brands are doing what's successful so yeah. it helps your NPD mm-hmm. second you get better margins because you're going mm-hmm. direct and three um when you're brand building especially as a founder it's like the best opportunity um in when you when you're early on in your career just to learn and be part of this journey and a retailer is a huge extension of the team especially if it's most of your your business mm-hmm. so i think you're absolutely right in your key markets and the ones you're prioritizing it's where you should try to focus being direct and then if you want to go globally i think you know i think i might have to do this later is to realize my team is spread thin even if i grow my team but i launch in a market that's not my priority but still important to have as a global level i don't think i you know I, i still might need to go down the distributor model or the the local partner model because they wouldn't have a better know how to get the brand better you know mm-hmm. um, kind of a, a stronger brand awareness locally right. but also i would just be too spread thin because yeah. i can't afford you know a local gm i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70% of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bomba donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com/acast, code acast. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June too is it's a quick dry. Dries in about 1 minute, lasts for 5 days, and full coverage in up to 1 to 2 coats. Visit oliveandjune.com/perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com/perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There. Totally. And also the teams on the ground, I mean, they're the consumer because they are exactly. from that market. They are yeah. shopping at those retailers. They are consuming that local, you know, social media, the influencers that are in that market. So the local teams are um that's the like added value because they they are your consumer. So um yep. yeah, but it's it's difficult because when when you first start out you know, as, as I'm sure this is the same for you, you know, I mean, you're one person, you know that if you are doing it yourself, it'll get done the way you want it to be done. And so you do try, I mean, I've always tried in the past, I was like, I want to kind of control things, especially the things that I find really important, like retail relationships or certain marketing things. Um, but then as you grow, you have to let it go a bit, you know, and then you have to make sure that you're building a team that is um, they have the background and experience to do what you need them to do, but also that there's a trust there that they can activate and, and bring to life, you know, what is that that brand story or what is that that yep. brand identity in the way that you would want it to, to see it happen. So 
I guess that's the, those are the growing pains of, of, 100%. of scaling a startup. And, yeah. you know, cause you mentioned, we mentioned a lot in this panel podcast about team and, and sometimes being spread thin or not. So just if you can share like in a nutshell, what was the sort of like team, your internal team, not the, the distributed team, but like, what was your, like, did you start with just like you and Francois and then how did it now today, like how big is the team size? Yeah. So we started in Shanghai building the team and um, because we are two different cultures and having lived in a third culture, we tend to bring on people who are really similar to us, I would say. So, um, and this was how it was in China and this is how in Spain we also hire. And I generally kind of look for certain profiles is, um, I think, uh, I would say the team there and also the team now we do have a lot of expats. Um, I like people who have profiles that have, you know, lived in different countries, even if it's just like a study abroad or there's a curiosity or people who travel a lot, but it helps a lot if they've lived and worked in a different culture or country because we're so third culture about the way we work that they're much more adaptable to us if they have seen that and they have been in environments with different types of nationalities, languages, having to develop those emotional, like soft skills, like emotional intelligence and soft skills to be able to work with different personalities. Um, and so I would say the team is very diverse. I was counting the other day, we have like 10 nationalities, I would say on the team. Wow, so um, that's amazing. Really fun. Yeah, like really, really fun, um, but really open-minded, very curious, um, very hungry to learn, love to travel. So there's this dynamic. Um, certainly yeah. when we were in China and also in Spain, we do have locals, you know, so we had either Chinese yeah. locals or Spanish locals. Um, but the, the locals that we were bringing onto the team and, you know, certainly it was a learning curve as well, because when we started in Spain, it was like having another startup, having learned how to work in China and all the, just everything related to hiring and legal and all the things like we had to start over and do that in Spain and learn what is the culture like here? What do people expect? And what are the the local things that we need to take into account? Um, so the, even in Spain, like the local people that are on the team, a lot of them have, you know, lived in other countries um, and have this very open-minded, you know, curiosity. And they like being part of a more international team. So that's one thing. Um, it has been really interesting because I would say our multicultural of our company and, and our team has been one of our one of the great joys and one of our um, mm -hmm. strengths because people are like our team is even though it is all women apart from Francois my founder my, my co-founder and my brother works with us so there's wow. two guys um, my brother's in Hong Kong though so he's remote but the rest of the team is all women and you know you can imagine with, like with all women what that dynamic could be like and I have to say this is a group that is um, that is very supportive of each other. Um, we don't have any of this kind of like mean girls or competition. I know you always say collaboration over competition. Yeah. And I feel that on the team, like, oh, like in amazing. 2022, this is the, the attitude that we need to have, you know, and this is the spirit yeah. that we need to have. So, um, that's the, I would say that's the makeup of the team. It's very diverse. Um, and so, you know, we, we want to preserve that, but definitely, it's, it's not that it's not always that easy because, you know, most companies, you know, like we used to go to exhibitions and like we would go to like Cosmoprof, you know, in Bologna yeah. and you would see 
a Swedish brand and the founders would be Swedish and they yeah. speak Swedish and it was like, they're from Stockholm. It was really clear this brand identity, you know, just from the basics. And then we'd go to exhibitions and people would be like, where are you from? And we're like, Oh, uh, well, I'm American and he's French, but we live in Shanghai, but Barcelona. And it was just so like complicated. Yeah. But, um, but today I think it's actually what makes it very interesting for us. Um, but the challenge is that, you know, it's not one culture. And so there, there are things that have to be understood. You know, there's a balance that has to be struck. Um, I tend to have a very American leadership style and way to work, um, which is that I am very ambitious and I want to achieve a lot of efficiency. And I tend to be um, very communicative, um, very collaborative, you know, working my, my partner and, you know, I mean, he's my ex-boyfriend. So we face a lot of challenges together. I mean, he's, yeah. he's very French in his way to, to work and which French people tend to like to, they're very open to debate, debating yeah. things in meetings. Like they like to hash it out and they're not offended if you're trying to hash it out. Like they actually like to work this way, um, to get to the best answer or solution. Um, and so, you know, the different cultures has always played in. And I think the challenge has been, if you're part of one culture, yeah, everyone kind of understands everyone because you grow up in the same place, you know the, the codes of how to behave um, and what's expected. But when you are multicultural and you are dealing with, you know, people from all sorts of backgrounds, yeah. um, the, there needs to be certain values that tie you together and sort of that approach to, to make it make sense. And I mean, it's great as well because yeah. apart from just as the two founders, but also as your team, you know, you have like nearly 10, over 10 like um, cultures. I think it's, it's hard definitely to like find the balance between what do you let go of? What do you do you listen to? Because obviously you have to think about all opinions are relevant opinions, especially when it comes to being, uh, uh, having a brand that's having such a global footprint. So it's important to definitely allow that kind of creativity and ideas to come through. But definitely when it comes to decision-making, having two founders of very different cultures and also, um, and, and history, it can be, it can be interesting. And I have my sister where, we're fortunate to obviously have the same upbringing and culture, which does make things a lot easier and same mission. But having said that, also being siblings, you know, we're actually one of the first sibling founded brands at Sephora, which I kind of asked myself, oh, do siblings not often create brands in, in the beauty industry? And yeah. hearing you now working with your sibling, what is that like to work with your brother? Although, you know, albeit he's in Hong Kong, how is that like? Uh, well, I'm also really curious to hear about how it is to work with your sister. So I want you to tell me about it after. Um, but I would say my brother has been tremendously supportive. Um, he's eight years younger than me. So we, you know, are, are very different in terms of age. He has a very different personality than me. So what, whereas I'm kind of very outgoing and, and talkative and I can, you know, have this sort of sensitive side, he's really pragmatic. Um, and it's just been really helpful because he doesn't really, you know, he's pretty even keeled, I would say, and just, any, any crisis that's happening, he sort of just takes it in and is very pragmatic about how we handle things and the next steps on how we do things. Um, he's been a great sounding board as well. Um, granted, he's not, you know, one of the founders, but he is very much um, privy to all the information, like between me and Francois, my brother is the third person there to know everything that's going on, 
he manages our um, finance and operations. So he has visibility to all of the things that are happening, all the numbers and everything. So it's really great because I deeply trust him because he's family. Um, he's super smart. My mom always said, your brother is smarter than you. <laughs> um, so he's so smart and he really brings that other perspective that um, is, is it just really compliments. So I think like the three of us, like Francois, my brother and me, we're really different, but there's yeah. a great mix of skills and very complementary skills that, um, that, that, are, that are very good for the business, actually. I mean, pretty much what you're saying is, is kind of the recipes for success when it comes to working with loved ones and siblings and family. But um, it's kind of what happens with me and my sister. She's like two and a bit years older than me, um, two, three years. It's interesting because I'm the CEO. Technically, I'm, I'm managing her on the team. And uh, because we're so different in personality, um, she's got traits that I aspire to have. And she has, you know, likewise, I think she feels with me. I'm more the meticulous um, kind of mm-hmm. business, diligent, um, trained and I guess you could say smarter one. She's the more creative, <laughs> outgoing, right. uh, free spirit one. Um, growing up, it's always been that. She was always like, oh, he, he's studying. Come on, let's go out and r- run around the garden. I was like, no, I need to work. So that was like our mm-hmm. dynamic. And right. I think it's been great because um, she has very, very little ego. I definitely have ego, which um, I think is healthy in a way because I'm aware of mm-hmm. it. And it's ego to like fuel my my vision and my ideas that's why yeah. I'm having a podcast there's ego in there right yeah. we're talking we're sharing yeah. um she's more like she's the one who if she got a ticket to the oscars she'll be like oh do you want to go and you can take my ticket and i'm like okay so that's our dynamic and i think having that without the two alphas and you know she's very open very very respectful of course then the sibling part does kick in a lot where we're very free to just say what we feel and sometimes we'll mm-hmm. shout sometimes we'll be like you know you're stupid stop it blah blah then we have to like remember we're, we're siblings there's normal right it's 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 that kind of comfort in being able to like just say what we think and feel but um that inherent sense of trust is what you said which i think for me was the the reason why i think i wouldn't do it with anyone else but her i could have you know and i don't know if you feel the same i I get days where I'm like, I could have done this on my own, but I couldn't have as well. And I think that's where I'm like, I don't mind in the future, you know, as an entrepreneur, I'll I'll probably build more things. And I definitely want my next thing to be on my own Um, Mm -hmm. because there's benefits having a founder, a co-founder, and there's other benefits having just, you know, you and your vision. Because I feel sometimes I can go quicker if I was just me with my thoughts and let's Mm -hmm. just go, go, go. So do you feel sometimes like there are days where you're like, if I just did this on my own, it could have been a different direction? Um, well, I mean, with my, um, with Francois, my ex, you know, we, it was, it was very rocky for many years and I mean, it's still not totally smooth, but, um, I mean, we learned to kind of, you know, we need each other and we've built this together. So we continue to do this together, but I would say, um, you know, it's interesting because I look at other founder, like, like pairs, you know, or, or single founders or or pairs of founders or, or, or trios of founders. And I do wonder about the dynamics. Um, I think, it can be very lonely to be a founder. Even if you have a partner, it can be very lonely depending on what you're working on, what they're working on, if the dynamic is healthy or not healthy. Um, And I would say that I think if I were to do it all again, I would, I would not go it alone. Um, I think I I want to have around me complementary skills. Um, It's important that, you know, like picking a founder is, is really, it's like, it's like marriage, like picking oh, you know, a, a partner. I it's mean, a life, it's a decision for life, you know, it, 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 that will absolutely. stay with you. Even if you sell your brand or, you know, whatever, you still have those experiences that will be with you and those learnings forever. 
Yeah. And I think um, whoever that partner is, um, you know, sometimes I do know couples do easily kind of go into working together naively. And it's, it's, it is hard for couples, I think, to, to persevere and still preserve that personal relationship. And I see a lot out there and I do wonder, you know, what, what is it like behind the scenes? Because I know what it was like for us behind the scenes. Um, it's very challenging, but I think, I don't think I would go it alone if I were to do it again, because, um, having the support of others and other skill sets can really help. And, you know, I look at, um, the glow recipe founders, um, Christine Christine and Sarah, and I'm like, what I, what I really love about their dynamic is that I don't know how they split their work, but by having two founders who are very front facing and PR facing, they actually, I see them like they divide and conquer. Like one goes to the training of the Sephora staff and the other one's doing a podcast interview. And that's something that I'm like, well, that'd probably be great to have someone because um, like Francois doesn't do front facing stuff. He's like, I, I just want to be behind the scenes. So that's an added value of, I think, having a partner, not just the, um, support you know as long as you guys are like it's the conquer and divide it's the yes is that yeah yeah it's so true especially if you're going global because it can be very taxing on anyone individually and lonely um to kind of like take on a big part of the business which is that front-facing founder-led mission driving Mm -hmm. part um being on the back end actually is great and my sister is that too but it also is you know to be honest, it, it's a it's a role that could be hired into the company as well, right? Yeah. There could be, yeah. Um, yeah. so it is something important to have that founder f- front and not be alone with it, um, and have those days where, and that's what we, me and my sister do. Sometimes I'm like, look, I'm so exhausted after this travel. Can you go and do this live stream? And we'll just be like, yeah, mm-hmm. I'll take this one. Don't worry. Or can you do this before a meeting? And we still want the founder mm-hmm. there. But yeah. it can't be every single time. And also, we can get bored every single time saying the story totally. and the brand and we're like a robot. Yeah. So uh, I do think it's, it's true. Totally. It's, having someone is important. Um, but before, uh, you know, before we go into kind of like the fire round and, and um, kind of wrap it up, I do want to ask a bit, because you haven't really spoken much about the products because they're absolutely mm-hmm. incredible. Um, I would love to know kind of like how, number one, I have to give commendment to the fact that your mission was, you know, from their own personal anecdotes, you know, making it affordable was very important for you because it should be, you know, it should be a luxury. It should, this luxury should be for everyone to be able to enjoy um, of having beautiful and empowering nails. And I feel like you've done that with an, such an incredible price point, which I feel obviously, you know, you've definitely thought about the mission first, not the profit bottom line for you as a founder, because it's easier to add a couple mm-hmm. of dollars on and make more margin. Um, but did you kind of like, like, A, how did you manage to, you know, go about creating an incredible brand, great quality, great packaging, and still have a great price point? And B, can you talk us through a little bit about the kind of product and this really cool, like, macaron, LED lamp, all that stuff. Can you talk us through? When I was living in Shanghai, I used to go to the salon to get my manicures done every few weeks. And um, I wanted to have, like, those perfect nails, but not have to worry about it too much. Like, it'd be done, and then I can go on with my life. It was expensive. Um, I was going probably every two to three weeks. Um, I loved that it was just really gorgeous. I mean, you could probably see my nails now, but I love having like gorgeous like nails that They're are beautiful really painted. Yeah. Thanks, and like it's hard to type with long nails, but they look good for photography. Um, but yeah, I love having my nails done. But I, I didn't like having to get into the salon. Also, like waiting around and then having to book an appointment just to have my gel nails removed. So the convenience of it, the sort of freedom of my own time, um, and the cost of it really weighed on me. And um, when I met Francois, he actually 
was doing stuff in beauty. And then also specifically, he had a lot of experience doing nail stuff. So he really had those resources of like the factories and like product development and how do we do it? And what is the skew line? Like the range, how does it look? So he brought a lot of that um, know-how. Um, and then we just combined forces. Like we said, okay, um, you know, nail art was big. So we, d- we dabbled in nail art. We um, then gel was, you know, this is back in like 13, 14 gel was really having this like moment and you know, there were all these like sets, but the sets were really big. Like they were probably $70 or 70 euros for that big lamp. You had all those bottles. So it was like the salon at home, but it was expensive and really knowing how to do it and step-by-step what you had to do to really achieve that great result. It was a bit hard for people to understand. I mean, you'd have to want to spend the money for it. So we went about creating a one-step, really easy to do line. We wanted it to be really fast, you know, as foolproof as possible, easy to learn and understand. Um, and the fact that like, I'm a Francophile, <laughs> I mean, I've been studying French since I was like 12 and then he's yeah. French. So I know a lot about French culture. Um, and we were thinking about, well, we want it to be a one finger lamp. So you do dry one finger at a time. What could the shape of that look like? And, um, You know, we had a friend who was doing some sketches for us of like what that shape could look like for the lamp. And he presented us two options. So one was the ring and the second one was the mackerel. And the ring was this round thing and it sat at the end of your finger to dry your nail. And I was like, this is not logical because rings are worn at the base of the finger. And more importantly, I love the mackerel idea because the mackerel is iconic, you know, Anyone all over the world. It's very French, but it's also just everyone knows what a macaron is. Um, We have Japanese customers who see it and they're like, kawaii, it's so cute. So Uh, it's a very relatable, uh, iconic, and it's very cute. So it's very colorful. Um, It's a baked good. So it's it's fun in that sense. And the fact that it's really colorful when we first launched, we wanted all of the color names of our polishes to be macaron names. So we were like naming shades. Lavender, pistachio, lemon sorbet. And it was just extremely fun for the creative team. Um, yeah. And so that's how it came about. And I thought, okay, Macron just it's, has marketing legs. You know, I just yeah. think it can go really far. Um, so that's how we started with that as a concept. And then the product idea was to make something affordable, convenient, easy to use, um, easy to manage. So even when you remove it, like we include removal wraps in that kit. So you've got your first time removal when you go home. Um, we yeah. wanted to make it really turnkey. So that, and that product launched in 2015. So it's still our hero yeah. skew. Yeah. We have different colors. We also made the larger set. So there's the deluxe, there's the mini and the maxi. Yeah. So the maxi is like the big it's lamp. So, um, so it's really amazing. funny. Yeah. And we play a lot on like franglais. So that's something yeah. we have a lot of fun with. Like, just mixing French and English words. Like we have a product called Le Frenchy and this is your French yeah. manicure. Um, so super fun. Like we play on that a lot. And um, so that's how we created the the core line and the product. Uh, what was your second question? That was the first question. So that was my, and then kind of like, I guess, how did you manage to keep it to like, the, you kind of mentioned about the pricing and stuff, like how, do, you know, cause it's such, it's incredible to be able to make it still affordable for everyone. So that's, you said that was a prize. I mean, thing, it's right? hard. I think with supply yeah. chain and everything, like the last couple yeah. of years, it's really hard. I mean, I'm it's sure really you're hard. facing the same thing. And, and inflation too. And a lot of brands uh, are considering, yes. you know, and I think there's an education piece of like, it's okay yeah. to increase 
by a couple of dollars because you know our costs are increasing our labs put us like without any warning like we've increased our price our dcs are saying we've now increased our shipping fees by two three dollars it's like you can't really do anything you're kind of like at the helm of them Um, i know so yeah it's it's really hard um Production, yes. Factories and production have increased all the shipping. I mean, when I saw our end of year ship, like transportation cost recap, it was just jaw dropping. Like That's scary. It's and horrible. Especially if, you, if you want to start to be like um, a lot of companies are hoping to become like B Corp certified and all this kind of like net, you know, like really like net zero, like net zero emission and carbon footprint. And it's really difficult when everything is just increasing in cost and long lead times and we have to do air freight to get in time for oh, yeah. retailers and to not be so oh, yeah. it's like we're kind of in like a we walk we walk two steps ahead and we go back three steps because of this the industry and the world's yeah kind of, yeah in the way it is i do think brands are at a really challenging point in this moment because on the back end we're facing the pressure of all the rising costs but then on the front end Honestly, raising retail prices is really the last thing I want to do. If we yeah, have to exactly. do it, we'll do it. But I don't really to. want to do that because I feel like no matter how we explain it to the consumer, it's it's usually not received well. Um, and it's so. and it's honestly it's quite hard when um, I you know I, I don't really look at competition because I feel everyone has a purpose and we're all going together. But I'll be naive to not realize that there are a lot of brands coming left, right, and center. A lot of them are backed by retail giants that can afford a loss yes. in the first five six years. <laughs> yes. And if they're pricing it at what X. They take your concept, they make it a little bit different, they price it cheaper, they go in the same distribution channels. You know, it's sort of like you can't really increase your price because you will lose market share, even yeah. if you were one of the first and had incredible loyalty. Because at the end of the day, we are all consumers too. You know, I would rather go for the $3 cheaper one if it does roughly the same thing. So it is hard to find the balance. But I think that's where balancing that with like just proximity to your customers understanding your loyalty and educating them on the journey there's a few brands i I know that the founder of crave beauty does this a lot but like a lot of education on why Mm -hmm. you know things are happening and a lot of the feedback i see in the comments are like oh my god thank you for sharing we understand and we're going to support you because yeah if you got hit with that huge you know brexit or this and that why we have to charge Mm -hmm. a bit more in these markets and why the pricing is not the same standardized globally i think that helps just educating. Yeah. The community I found, I mean, we, we didn't build community from day one. I would say we doubled down on community more in the last couple of years. Um, and the community has been tremendously supportive. So we, we created a Facebook group, um, for our private community that has been just remarkable to see how consumers are responding. And, and, you know, I'm very active on there. A lot of our team are very active and I do think, um, you know, I've had conversations with other beauty founders. There are some brands who've raised their retail prices. Um, you know, we have retailers who are coming to us to try to get more margin. And I'm like, that's yeah. it's such a hard time to ask an independent brand to I do know. that because you can't, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't really want to go too much into it, but it's we're really stuck in the middle. I think, like, yeah. in respect to our consumers, I really don't want to raise retail prices, but we are bearing a lot of the burden on the back end. And I don't know. I mean, there's some things like, I mean, one thing that we did recently was, um, I was like, I don't want to raise our retail prices, but let's raise our free shipping minimum to yeah. try to get that, you know, let that average basket value up a bit more. That exactly. they'll still get what they get, but um, we can balance it out a bit. So. It was one tactical thing to try to manage it. There's ways to be creative with it. And I think 
as a founder, we'll never, we never make concrete decisions. Always we have to keep agile, see all the options mm. and keep them all as like, you know, potential ways forward. But I think at the end of the day, the intentions are, if, as long as they're, you know, good and loyal. And I think you, I can see that, especially with you in creating this brand, that um, every time I talk to you, I ask you a question, you always put them first, the consumers and the team. And I think that's just all you can ask for as a founder is that vision will oft, often create the most long lasting, sustainable and authentic, I think, brand. Well, one thing I do want to ask is sort of about, because um, I just feel personally hearing the story and everything. And also people do like to go to nail salons in person as well. Is there ever going to be your own kind of physical locations? I can imagine like the Ladderay equivalent of like nail salons. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Have, eating your macaron, I getting know. your nails dried by Honestly, like this time. whole thing, like macaron and nail combo, it would be yeah. genius, but expensive. Yeah, it would be, it's so fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that would be a dream. I would love to create a retail experience. Um, I think yeah. for the moment, we want to try now, kind of post-COVID, we want to try a bit more with um, with pop-up if we can. And that's, we haven't planned any it. yet. That's, that's the best. Yeah, I would love to start, start to test it out with pop-ups um, when we really feel okay, we can plan events. They won't get canceled. Um, yeah. You know, I don't know, maybe after the next six months, we'll start to see and that happening. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would love to create that retail experience, you know, and, and mm. yeah, nails and coffee and macarons is always a lovely combo. So I think, I think it's we'll, timing um, is, we'll is key. And also, um, you know, I see these, I see lots of brands that open up retail and close down, or I speak to a lot of uh, big industry brands. I'm like, Oh, like, like Lalabo, I'm not actually quoting yeah. these brands, but for example, often their their actual physical stores are really loss making. They don't actually they're there just mm-hmm. for experiential, but their main sales will be online. And it's hard as a self funded small bootstrap brand to like do that, and that will be bad because it's like look at the glossier effect. You'll have to then close mm-hmm. stores if it doesn't work out, lay off employees. Mm-hmm. So I do think the pop up route is best. It's it's fun. It's it's easy, and it's a lot more. Um, sustainable but also leveraging retail right like using the doors to do in-store events using their physical space um also bringing the brand equity to there and then even like um one idea you know could be like even franchise like using it more of a like imagine like events or something like you know could you like hire like a a macaron and the mini macaron uh, educator or or, or field staff you know there's Mm -hmm. ways you can still be closer to the customer and it's about thinking about the consumer and I think that's where I'm so excited for this brand because I think there's so much post-COVID now that you yes. need to do. But speaking of COVID, um, before I go finally into the fire round, because I could speak to you for all day and we will <laughs> later continue our conversations. Definitely. How has like, the COVID, um, you know, post-pandemic um, shifted your kind of rituals? Do you feel like now, personally, as Christina, you've like developed some new routines for success and for your business? Um. No, I haven't. <laughs> um, I'm the same. Actually, I'm the same. <laughs> I'll be honest. Like, I think, um, you know, we were very lucky during COVID on the business side in the sense that, you know, nail really boomed, which I think for you guys too, hair, same. nail, like this yeah. wellness. Home and, rituals. Yep. Yes. Self-care. Absolutely. It was just, we had a captive audience who were willing to like do these, you know, hair masks, manicures, you know, like taking the time to really like take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. So we really benefited from that. And we're very grateful for that. Um, and with that shift, it really, it, you know, the business grew a lot. We were able to take that and kind of really put it into brand marketing and, mm-hmm. and also staffing. Um, and so now the next phase is, um, I would say COVID 
helped us get to the next level and then really grow up a bit as a company. Um, and so now we, we do have a larger staff, um, more people with, you know, a lot more specialized experience. Um, we're, you know, we have, I have advisors and consultants around me that help guide the activities that we do so that we're, we're really picking, you know, with marketing, especially digital marketing, changing the way it does, you have to stay on top of it, make that spend work for you the right way. And, you know, four years ago, we were just pouring everything into Facebook, like, and the ROAS, they were good and we didn't have to be so concerned. It's not like that anymore. And we have to be really thoughtful about how we're, you know, picking and choosing activities and really being very, um, religious about looking at results, you know, and, and analytics and that kind of thing. So, um, moving ahead, that's really the focus for us is, um, kind of just keep growing up as a company. Um, you know, I really want our whole team to get much more literate in terms of looking at results and analytics. That's not something that was inherent for us. Um, but now we are moving towards that direction and, um, just being, you know, I, I would say with the U S market and sort of the target launch and all the marketing that we, we put around it, it was a good benchmark for us because especially as you were saying, Akash, about being, you know, all over the world, I think for us, like what I see with the U S is I can put the marketing budget there and the focus there because there is significant offline D to C is a cost center. Basically, you know, I I would say there's just not enough of that to, so if you didn't have the offline, you're paying for those ads, you're paying for the influencer marketing and it's not translating in the way that financially it needs to translate, but the offline they help each other. So then by having the offline with the online combined, I'm like, okay, it's one marketing budget. I'm supporting my brand. There are many channels where people can buy from, but ultimately I'm investing in my brand. I can land my consumer wherever, but I have enough revenue coming in that it's going to make sense. Now, is it going to be the way it is in 18 months? Maybe not. Maybe we need to refine a bit more. But for now, I'm like, this is a good next step for us. Super exciting. And no, I'm, I'm really just um, in awe of everything you've done and what you've had the brand experience and learned from as a founder. You've given so much to it, but I can see also no signs of slowing down, which is just so exciting. Um, oh, so I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm personally very excited about you as a founder and you know what you'll achieve with Lamini Macron and everything else in the future. Um, but like in terms of like a desert island question, which I ask all my guests, as you know, um, I'm kind of going to change the question up a bit nowadays and be like, you know, I'm inviting everyone founders to a retreat, What? but you can only bring one product for everyone to enjoy. What is that one product that you'll be bringing with you? One, one skew or one shade or yeah, what's your go-to? Well, it would definitely be the mini gel manicure kit so people can get yes. their manis and petties done when they're on that island. Um, and Amazing. it comes with a USB, so I'm like, travel. You can travel with it. Um, so amazing. that would be the item. Yeah. And the shade, what's your go-to um, shade? My favorite shade in the range that I would say, well, you know, I'd probably just pick a bestseller would be a light pink shade. So our fairy floss yes. shade is a bestseller, um, of the mini kits. Very universal. Awesome. I also love it. Yeah, the namings are amazing. I saw like cassis, which is like in French, like the berries and stuff. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. so cool. I'm like, it reminds yeah, me of fun. literally going into a macaron store. It's amazing. Right. Um, right. So fire round questions. Um, first thing that comes to your mind is what's another beauty brand you're currently loving? Um, I'll be honest. I love um, Hero Cosmetics. Um, yes. Ju is just so impressive with how she has built that brand and that company. Um, so I follow everything that she does. I think as a 
as a as a benchmark and of like best practices. I'm so impressed with what she's doing. I couldn't agree more. I, and honestly, the like the patches, the manufacturer, they they absolutely work. And for me, like I use them. Like I, before I even met you, I was like. They, they were just phenomenal. And there, there are a lot of them in the market, but I think hers are really with the right price point and the right efficacy. Right. So it's amazing. Definitely. Um, what's a guilty pleasure of yours? Oh my God. Well, you know, working like working the way I do um, during the week, I come home and I'm just like Netflix and Glovo. Glovo is like, I, I don't know what you guys have in the UK. No, it's like the equivalent of like, ordering like, like not yeah. food, but like, is it like ordering like groceries and that kind of stuff, I guess? Or is it um, It's um, delivery. So I guess in the okay. US it's like seamless. Um, yeah, but seamless, in Southern Europe, yeah. like France, it's like Glovo. So I'm like Netflix, Deliveroo, Glovo, Glovo and Netflix. Yeah, Deliveroo, yeah. Uber Eats, totally. Yeah. So oh, that's I... like a, it's, it's, it's not a guilty pleasure. I... It's like a daily activity. <laughs> so I have to ask, founder to founder, do you have time? Well, not time, I hate the word you have time, but do you cook every night or do you order in? Because I order in. Oh my God. Um, that's my opportunity cost. I'm like that two hours no. to cook. I could do emails. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's a lot of work. I mean, sometimes on the weekends I'll do stuff, but, um, yeah. my mom's a chef and I'm like, it oh, wow. skips a generation, you know, like yeah. she was always doing the cooking. So, you know, <laughs> no, I feel you. I, I like, if you go on my Netflix, everything that I watch is cooking shows and like, um, oh, really? like every season of master chef baking shows. So you would think I would like say to myself, yeah. like I'm an incredible chef and, and baker right. because I just right. know everything. I just don't have the practice. <laughs> That's yeah, you I have the myself. intention. I have the, the intention and there. the know-how. I can like, I'm vegetarian, I'm vegan and like, and I can like fillet a fish probably. And I just don't yeah. even, I've never done it. and no one ever will. But yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I love, love cooking. I'm totally shows. on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are you currently watching or reading? Um, okay, so this is probably a guilty pleasure. I'm obsessed with... Um, Israeli Netflix series. Really? <laughs> yes. I know. It's like, I don't know. And Netflix just keeps serving up more to me. So I've watched like all of them. Um, wow. I, I really like watching, I know this is crazy, but I love watching like World War II stuff. Yeah. And so I really love watching um, like, I don't know, war and that kind of stuff, battles. battles. And so the Israeli shows, it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of like action and like uh, yeah. espionage and things like that. So um yeah, that's what I'm watching. Well, I'm probably done with most of them at this point, but uh, <laughs> I really recommend them. Like if you're a founder and you're stressed, there's nothing like forgetting all your worries and then tuning into, you know, yeah. high action espionage, like people with more problems than 100%. you. hundred percent. Oh, I, and that's why I watch a lot of horror films, just because it just kind of makes you feel like, oh, okay, yeah. life could be worse. So it's fine. Totally. So, totally. I completely agree. Uh, what's your favorite social media platform right now? Oh my God. I'm just Instagram and I know I need to spend more time on TikTok, TikTok but it is so difficult because I'm like, if I start getting addicted to TikTok, I will. No, like consider yourself done. lucky. Honestly, TikTok, I just spent 20 minutes this morning on TikTok and like about 30 minutes at night. And I used to be like four, five months ago, I used to be like, oh, I only use TikTok. And I used to also just do this. I only used to use TikTok for work and was I didn't really get it. I'm getting addicted. I'm noticing it. It's my top suggested app on Siri. And I'm like, okay, I need to like slow down a bit. It's so addictive. But, yeah. um, but I'm also like, oh, I'm screenshotting things. I'm like, because also it's right. showing me a lot of like beauty stuff. And I'm like seeing this influence. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, we should work with this person. And sometimes I'm like looking at their hair. It's so funny how you change. I did four years of engineering, right? So I remember I met this, um, I met someone on the weekend and I was just looking at her and I was like, 
oh, the, the bangs, like they, they were cut wrong and they're layered wrong. I'm like, what am I saying to myself? Like, if I told her, right. she'd be like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, this is like, you've become your brand. You've become like always Absolutely. thinking about it. It's crazy. I'm sure you look at people's nails all the time and like, oh, she could use a, a top coat. I do. Actually, when I interview people, this is very yeah. bad. When I interview people, I look at their hands because I'm like, our hand models are the people on the team. So every time I interview, I'm like, so can we shoot their hands? Is that a, can we That's shoot their hands? So, <laughs> I, I kind of do the same with hair as well, because obviously people will be like, you work at Fable and Maine, like you have to have good hair. But it's so funny, before this podcast, I actually at home like cut my nails for this. I was like, you're not going to see it, but I was like, I need to make right. sure I'm with a queen of nails. I cannot be coming in with my very unmanicured hands so I just I oh well thank you that's so, so lovely <laughs> um uh what do you have like a favorite quote quote or mantra that you live by well you know I mean not a quote but I would say I do say to myself a lot and I get this from my mom um learn and grow so yeah. my mom always instilled in me she's like look we're never too old to learn and mm. you need to constantly improve your knowledge on things and my mom is like 73 I think and she is like the biggest user. Like she's all over her iPhone. She is on every social media app. Like of, of someone, you know, all the parents I know of that age, I'm like, she is so digitally savvy. Um, it is really funny. So um, very uh, representative of this this uh, mantra, I guess. So I'm very much um, a curious person who, yeah, I'm really into learning and growing. Exactly. Because if you're just mm-hmm. learning without kind of using it to to grow and propel exactly it's so important yeah um and often i think it's hard to believe that because we were always kind of to be honest raised in school to learn without necessarily the implementation it was just like to Mm -hmm. put in an exam it's when you get to uni really in your real life when you work and stuff you really implement the learnings um i think it's important even when you're younger um to just try to like implement as much of your learnings in any field of life and then obviously when you're older to not realize you know it's you never it's never too late to to create something i've spoken to founders here who have created a brand in their 70s um and founders who well, haven't yet found a f- met a founder no there's been some founders that like uh, for example even like taylor and nude sticks like you know she started when she was like 17 18 it was incredible with her parents yeah. and was, yeah you can be any age which is amazing yeah that's so true um, my last question is if you weren't a beauty entrepreneur what would you be doing right now oh that's a great question to be honest, like I love what I do. And yeah. when people have that question, like, what did you want to do when you were growing up? What could you do differently? I'm like, like I'm this. exactly where I want to be. Like I, yeah. I'm really, I, I love that um, doing this business and also having sort of persevered through the very hard years of this business that yeah. now it's been nine years. I'm fortunate that this business can, can, can feed me and allow me to have the freedom and the independence to live the life I want, live where I want to, um, shape, you know, the brand into where I see it going. And I feel really fortunate for that. I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to get to this point. So there wouldn't be anything else I want to do. It was what I wanted. You're the only guest who said that. And I love that, you know, most people say something and I think it really is quite also telling that, you know, it's, um, Mm -hmm. You kind of like haven't thought about it, which is because this is your dream and this yeah. is your goal, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, so really, no, thanks for that answer. It's yeah. really nice to hear. I think um, cool. that's really important as well to be 
to, to know that that is actually an option here. It's like, you know, mm. just continue doing. So thank you. Um, so now, you know, I'm going to wrap it up because um, I'm sure you have a busy day as a founder of things you need to do, peers need to sign. <laughs> but um, where can everyone find you on social media and Le Mini Macaron so they can continue following your inspiring journey? Yeah. Um, so my Instagram is at the Christina Ko. Um, you can always find me on LinkedIn as well. I'm pretty active on there. And Instagram for our brand is at Lemini Macaron. And then we have two websites, LeminiMacaron.com or .eu. If you're in Europe, um, you can find our, 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 our sites online. Amazing. Well, I'll put all the links hyperlinked in the summary so everyone can quickly check and um, definitely do give Christina and Lemini Macaron a following, uh, a follow. And also if you, you know, walk around like a Target or any of the retail, the wild, wider range of retailers that they're in, you can definitely go check it out. So <laughs> thank you, Christina. It's been an thank absolute you, pleasure and honor. And well, I'm, I, I'm not even going to say bye. I'll speak to you probably like next week. You're just going to yes, we're going to have a Zoom call. Yes, exactly. We have to do that. I have to say, I'm so grateful that you invited me on your podcast. I'm amazed at everything you do. I, I, I do follow you online and I'm just amazed at how many different activities that you're doing and lifting up, you know, your community. And so very excited to know you. Oh, I know. Thank, Thank you. you. And, and likewise, and this is why I do it is to get to meet people like you and, and make lifelong friends and just yeah. be on this journey together. So excited for what's to come for both of us. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Founded Beauty as much as I had making it. And if you did, please share it with a friend who you think will love it too. Founded Beauty is available on all podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music Podcasts, the Acast app, and many more. And I'm also very proud to be part of the Acast Creator Network. So be sure to follow the podcast so you can get episodes as soon as they drop. We really appreciate every single follow, listen, share, and review. It truly goes such a long way and helps us reach new listeners. So as a little thank you, I will be hosting a giveaway each week on my Instagram channel at meta underscore a, where you can win some amazing Fable Main goodies. All you have to do is follow me, check out my stories and all will be revealed. Stay tuned for the next episode of Founded Beauty and don't forget to subscribe and follow so you can be notified when it drops. <laughs>